Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. (sighs) I tell you, sweetheart, I am glad to be done with that case. Me too. I've barely seen you. You've been working such long hours. I guess that's what I get for being the wife of Inspector Graham. I'm sorry. I really am. But you have to put in the hours if you want to win. You did win, right? Of course I won. A jury tried Truscott and found him guilty. Yes, of course, dear. I didn't mean to question your work. It's just... They're going to hang a 14-year-old boy. I do hope they're sure. I... Well, he... I don't like that a 14-year-old boy is being hanged any more than you do, but Stephen needs to pay for what he did, and I'm I'm pretty sure that he did it. Pretty sure? Well, how sure can anyone be with these things? He did it. We proved it. Besides, who else could have done it anyway? This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on Lynn Harper in Ontario. Last week, we covered the horrific murder of 12-year-old Lynn Harper and the arrest and trial of the boy charged with her murder, her 14-year-old classmate, Stephen Truscott. This week, we'll follow Stephen's controversial appeals process and consider other possible suspects. On the evening of June 9, 1959, 12-year-old Lynn Harper went for a bike ride with her classmate and crush, a 14-year-old boy named Stephen Truscott. The two attended school together on the Air Force Base in their small town of Clinton, Ontario. When Lynn didn't return home that night, her family sounded the alarm. Two days later, a search party found Lynn's corpse in a patch of woods near the base, with her clothes folded neatly nearby. It didn't take long for suspicion to fall on the last person to see her alive. Just two days after Lynn's body was found, 14-year-old Stephen Trescott was charged with murder. He was tried and convicted before the end of the summer. And on September 30th, 1959, Stephen was sentenced to death by hanging. On October 1st, 1959, Stephen's sentencing was already being drowned out by other headlines. The case was already fading from people's minds. They trusted that justice had been served and had begun to move on with their lives. The same could not be said for the families of Stephen Truscott and Lynn Harper, 
who were still trapped in a living nightmare. Stephen's family tried desperately to clear their son's name as his execution date loomed just weeks away. While they prayed that Stephen would be spared the death penalty due to his young age, they knew that his odds weren't good. Between 1920 and 1960, Canadian officials had executed plenty of people under the age of 20. But on November 20th, 1959, Stephen saw his first glimmer of hope since being charged with Lynn's murder. Justice Minister Davy Fulton, the head of the Canadian Department of Justice, announced his decision to postpone Stephen's execution in order to give his lawyers a chance to appeal. The new execution date was set for February 16, 1960. The decision filled Stephen's family with fresh hope, but there was no time to celebrate. They had to put everything into the appeal. The Trescotts turned to John O. Driscoll, a cutthroat attorney who was well-known in Ontario. They hoped that he would succeed where Stephen's previous attorney, Frank Donnelly, had come up short. O. Driscoll was given only a few short weeks to prepare for the hearing. On January 21, 1960, the five judges on the Ontario Court of Appeal took their seats to hear Stephen's case. Per Canadian law, no new evidence could be considered during the appeal process. Only points of law could be discussed. This meant that O'Driscoll would have to convince the judges of Stephen's innocence by exposing flaws in the way Stephen's trial had been handled. He started the hearing by reviewing the unreliable testimonies that had been given by local Clinton children during the trial, particularly the testimonies of Jocelyn Gaudet and Butch George. After pointing out the many inconsistencies in their stories, O'Driscoll suggested that the young witnesses might have been flexible with their testimonies because they did not understand the meaning of witnessing under oath. Next, O'Driscoll turned his focus to Justice Ferguson, the judge who had presided over Stephen's trial. He argued that Ferguson had been openly critical of Stephen for not testifying on his own behalf which could have swayed the jury to see the boy in a negative light. And finally, he pointed to an incident that had occurred in the latter half of Stephen's trial, when prosecuting lawyer Glenn Hayes referenced something he shouldn't have. Prosecution, please. Good men of the jury, you will not be hearing any confessions today. But still, on the night of June 21st, a statement was taken from Stephen Truscott, which he signed... Mr. Hayes, you know better than this. You cannot use that statement in court. My mistake, Your Honor. I apologize and withdraw my comment. Before being cut off by Justice Ferguson while addressing the jury, Hayes made a reference to a signed statement Stephen had made to the police. The way Hayes had spoken about it suggested that it had been some sort of confession. In reality, Stephen's statement had been an assertion of innocence. But the jury would never know this. Justice Ferguson had declared it inadmissible because Stephen had given it before he was told that he was being charged with a crime. While the justice's intent was to maintain the impartiality of the jury, O'Driscoll argued that cutting off Hayes in that moment had the opposite effect. It took Stephen's statement of innocence and made it look like a confession. After considering O'Driscoll's argument, the justices of the appeal court agreed that this misunderstanding could have been grounds for throwing out Stephen's original trial. They also agreed that certain arguments and pieces of evidence that had been employed by the prosecution were misleading. 
For example, a pair of Stephen's underwear containing trace amounts of blood and sperm had been presented to the court as the underwear Stephen had been wearing on the night Lynn was killed. However, this undergarment had actually been taken from him four days later, after he had already been placed in jail. As O'Driscoll pointed out, it was extremely unlikely that Stephen was still wearing that same pair of underwear four days later, particularly since his mother, Doris Truscott, testified that she had done laundry the day after Lynn's disappearance. But despite these discrepancies in the original trial, the most useful elements for proving Stephen's innocence were, unfortunately, still unknown to his lawyer. In 1959, the police and prosecution were under no legal obligation to share their evidence and findings with the defense. So, O'Driscoll had no idea that Lynn's parents had given three separate statements, saying that they thought she'd hitched a ride to her grandmother's on the night of June 9th, even though they had said during the trial that Lynn never hitchhiked. O'Driscoll also had no idea that the original interviews gathered from the defense's star witnesses, Jocelyn Gaudet and Butch George, did not indicate Stephen's guilt. It was only after they had spent considerable time with the police that their stories became useful for the prosecution. These facts went unexamined at Stephen's appeal. And though the justices agreed with O'Driscoll on many points, their re-examination of the evidence presented at Stephen's original trial only led them to the same conclusion. Stephen's guilty verdict would be upheld. On January 20th, 1960, just two days after Stephen's birthday, his appeal was dismissed. Newly 15, he was headed to the gallows. While there was general agreement amongst Canadian authorities that Stephen had committed the crime he was accused of, Justice Minister Davy Fulton, the Department of Justice head who had already postponed Stephen Truscott's execution once, was still uneasy. Let the record show that on this date, the 21st of January, 1960, the federal cabinet's meeting at the House of Commons has two items on the agenda. The scheduled hangings of one Marvin McKee and two Stephen Truscott. Hold on. Stephen is 14, correct? He's a boy. He's 15 now, Your Honor. He should still pay for his crime. Of course, but think of how it will look for Canada. Are we going to be the country that hangs a child? You do raise a good point. Stephen's second lucky break came on January 21st, 1960. At 12.23 p.m. on January 22nd, a telegram arrived at the Goderich jail. Get up, Truscott. Got a message for you. Governor General in Council has commuted the death sentence of Stephen Murray Truscott to life imprisonment in the Kingston Penitentiary. Looks like that hotshot lawyer of yours was worth it after all, Truscott. No death penalty, just a life behind bars. Canadian authorities had settled on a life in prison for Stephen, but they struggled to find a place for him to serve that sentence. They worried about sending a child to a federal penitentiary full of adult criminals and scoured the Canadian legal code for an alternative option. Well, they found one in the Penitentiary Act of 1868. The law stipulated that a convict under 16 could be transferred to a reformatory prison if he or she appeared capable of reformation. 
He just had to enter the penitentiary system first. Stephen spent one night in a Canadian penitentiary so that he could be officially deemed eligible for reformation and transfer. He was then sent to the Ontario Training School for Boys, a correctional facility in Guelph that looked more like a schoolhouse than a prison. Stephen made the six-hour trip in ankle chains and handcuffs. His guards wouldn't remove the handcuffs even when they stopped for a meal at a diner. But much to the school official's surprise, when Stephen arrived at the Ontario Training School for Boys in February 1960, he was polite, quiet, and shy. In fact, Stephen quickly became a favorite amongst the guards and teachers and found himself forming friendships with many of the inmates. The cook, Alice Hebden, took such a liking to Stephen that within a month he had gained 12 pounds. According to Alice, everyone at the school had a hard time matching the heinous crime Stephen had committed with the polite, sweet boy in front of them. Many at the school thought Stephen was innocent. One of the guards even allowed Stephen to play with his young daughters when they came to events at the school. But while Stephen was charming his friends and teachers, not everyone was won over instantly. From the moment Stephen arrived at the school, he began undergoing rigorous psychological testing. He didn't know it then, but this was a process he'd participate in for the next decade. He was seen by several psychiatrists, including H.J. Breen, J.P. Cathcart, and Dr. James Hartford. They had Stephen fill out extensive personality tests, which aimed to answer questions like, did Stephen read sex literature? And how did he feel when he heard Lynn was dead? Well, Stephen's answers to these questions did not imply that he was psychologically disturbed, but the psychiatrist noted that Stephen was defensive and guarded. They found it suspicious how well he was answering the questions and wondered if the reason for it was a cold, calculating interior underneath his rather hapless exterior. Based on their tests, and the fact that Stephen still refused to confess, he was diagnosed with a cocktail of mental health disorders, including borderline personality disorder, pathological lying, mild paranoia, and moderate psychopathic tendencies. There could hardly be two more diametrically opposed descriptions of a teenage boy. To his psychiatrists, Stephen was a repressed, devious troublemaker and master manipulator who had murdered his classmate. But ask the school's staff, and you'd hear that he was a sweet, quiet schoolboy convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. It's difficult to say which version represented the real Stephen. Soon, both parties found themselves wondering if there was something they just weren't seeing. Coming up, we'll find out who the real Stephen was and what was in store for him. And now, back to our story. In 1960, 15-year-old Stephen Truscott was serving the first year of his life sentence at the Ontario Training School for Boys after being convicted of the murder of his 12-year-old classmate, Lynn Harper. Stephen's family continued to fight for their son and hadn't given up hope of winning his freedom and clearing his name. Since they hadn't had any luck with the Ontario Court of Appeal, they moved up the ladder to their next available option. On February 22, 1960, Stephen's lawyer, John O. Driscoll, filed an appeal with Canada's Supreme Court. 
But on February 24th, only two days later, the request was denied. Frustratingly, no reason was given. For Stephen, this meant the end of the road. His lawyers had tried every legal avenue to set him free, and they had failed. All his team had left was their faith that someone would eventually realize the system had made a mistake. For Stephen's parents, Dan and Doris Truscott, that faith was fading fast. They had done their best to remain strong for their other three children, but were now finding it much harder to maintain hope. The Truscotts had moved out of Clinton shortly after Stephen's trial in an attempt to regain some semblance of normalcy and privacy. They had relocated to Richmond, a small town close to Ottawa. But it was tough to feel normal while driving over 300 miles every other weekend to see Stephen in Guelph. And the frequent trips were a large financial burden for the Truscotts, who had three other children to raise and a mortgage to pay. Both Dan and Doris took on extra jobs, which eased the financial strain, but stretched them even thinner. They finally purchased a trailer, which they kept in the yard of school cook Alice Hebden to cut their living costs ever so slightly. Alice remembers staying up with Dan Truscott until 5.45 a.m. because he was so sick with grief for his son. We failed him. We failed our son. He's locked away in there, missing his whole life. Hey now, Mr. Truscott, don't talk like that. Stephen won't be locked up forever. How can you be so sure? Everyone else seems to think our boy is a soulless monster. People who don't know him, maybe. Anyone who does can see plain as day that he's innocent. And the rest of the world will catch up soon enough. That means the world, Alice. Regardless of what the cook thought, Stephen still had a sentence to serve. And as of January 18, 1963... He could no longer serve it at the Ontario School for Boys. He had just turned 18, and things were about to get a lot worse for him. The day after Stephen's birthday, the entire school wept as he was driven away. Stephen was transferred to the Collins Bay Penitentiary in Kingston, where he was stripped of his name and given a number. From then on, he would be inmate number 6730. Stephen began to lose all hope of freedom. Alone in his cell in Collins Bay, he was forced to admit that he had been fantasizing about a pipe dream. But Stephen's growing sense of despair couldn't stop him from thinking constantly about leaving the prison. In 1964, at the age of 19, he took his first opportunity to apply for parole. What he wrote in his application was jaw-dropping. Did you read Truscott's application? Truscott? Number 6730. Listen, I know five years is not very long for a sentence like mine, but I was very young and all I ask is just one chance to prove that I'm worthy of being allowed to mix with society. I've done my best to keep a clean record while I'm serving my sentence. I have reached the stage where being locked up will be of no more good to me. I've paid five years of my life, but this has taught me that crime does not pay. So all I ask is please grant me one chance to make a success of my life and prove that one dreadful mistake does not mean that I will ever make another one. 
crime doesn't pay? One dreadful mistake? Is this a confession? The meaning of Stephen's parole request would be debated within the prison, but was largely taken as a confession. This interpretation of his letter made it much less likely he would be released on parole. But even if that weren't the case, there was an even larger barrier to Stephen's parole being approved. His release required the sign-off from his prison psychiatrist, Dr. George Scott, and that was not something he was going to get. Dr. Scott had been performing psychological testing on Stephen since his arrival in Kingston. His methods were a bit more experimental than those used at the Ontario Training School for Boys. Dr. Scott was a large proponent of narcotherapy, the use of drugs for therapeutic purposes. Stephen was given sodium pentothal, otherwise known as truth serum, as well as LSD. Have you made any progress with Stephen Truscott? You mean a confession? No, not at all. And you know, it's strange. He doesn't seem to remember much about his life from before the murder. All I can get out of him is we used to play ball, we went swimming when it was hot, that sort of thing. You think he's being cagey with you? No, Warden. I think he's repressed his memories. He doesn't remember killing Lynn. It's buried somewhere deep down in the folds of his brain. This sort of thing can happen when a person is overcome by a a psychotic episode, one they don't like to think back on later. So now you have to see if you can get him to crack? Not if I can get him to crack. When? On January 18, 1965, Stephen spent his 20th birthday in jail. Stephen didn't know it, but outside his cell, the world was beginning to change. Well, for one thing, the 60s were now in full swing, and they had brought with them a range of liberal new attitudes and ideas. For the first time, people were beginning to question the institutions and structures around them that had long been seen as infallible. It was a sign of the times that the new hit show on TV was called The Fugitive, and its hero was a man who had been wrongfully convicted by the police. In the midst of this wave of questioning authority came a book that would forever change Stephen's life. Released in 1966, it was entitled The Trial of Stephen Truscott. The book was the passion project of Isabelle Le Bourdet, a social activist who fervently believed that Stephen was wrongfully imprisoned. In writing her book, Isabel had obtained the court transcripts from Stephen's 1959 trial in their entirety, something no casual observer had ever done before. By combing through the reports of Dr. John Penniston, the pathologist who performed the autopsy on Lynn, she found some key discrepancies in his findings. In Dr. Penniston's first report to the police, he indicated that the time of death lay within a 24 to 48 hour window. It was only after Stephen was charged on June 13, 1959, that Penniston became much more specific, narrowing it down to a mere 30 minutes. Isabel argued that this was a clear example of molding evidence to fit a theory. She also managed to get a hold of the original interviews given by the children who testified in Stephen's case, including the original reports given by Jocelyn Gaudet and Butch George, which did not implicate Stephen as Lynn's killer. The information presented in Isabel's book was compelling. 
It painted a picture of police work that was hastily and shoddily performed and a trial that had been a travesty of justice. As she presented the evidence, it seemed as if the police had picked their suspect and then manipulated the evidence to support their theory. Well, there are a couple of reasons police may have wanted to pin the crime on Stephen Truscott, even if the evidence had been flimsy. Well, for one, Inspector Graham, the lead investigator on the case, was the youngest lead investigator in his branch, and he was extremely ambitious and eager to keep moving upward. And a great way to do that would be to quickly solve the case of a high-profile murder like Lynn's. If Isabelle Laborde was correct, Stephen had been a convenient scapegoat. At just 14 years old, he wasn't well-versed in the law, which made him a very manageable suspect. To make matters more complex, the crime's proximity to the military base made it more than likely the culprit was a member of the armed forces. Charging a member of the military with murder would only cause tension around the base, which Inspector Graham was eager to avoid. While many people in Clinton were thoroughly convinced of Stephen's guilt, many more across the country were moved by the facts presented in Laborde's book. They were horrified by the thought of how close Canada had come to hanging an innocent kid. As public outcry increased in the wake of the book's release, the federal cabinet felt pressured to take action. On April 26, 1966, they asked the Supreme Court to take a second review of the case. This time, the court would be allowed to hear new evidence. In essence, Stephen would get a new trial. While this was great news for Stephen and his family, it was worrisome for others, particularly those who felt that their work on the original trial might be called into question. Three weeks after the trial was announced, Inspector Graham received a letter from Dr. John Penniston, the pathologist who had performed Lynn's autopsy and determined her time of death. Dear Inspector Graham, I'm writing to you in light of the renewed interest in Stephen Truscott's trial. Truth be told, I have been a bit restless lately, thinking about my role in the case. While I certainly do think that Lynn Harper could have died between 7.15 and 7.45 p.m., I also think that she could have died outside of that window. A good bit outside of that window, if I'm being completely honest. I also think that some of the injuries we thought were from rape really could have just been decay from lying in the forest during a heat wave. I'd like to publish my updated thoughts in a medical journal to set the record straight. Please, let me know what you think. Sincerely, John. What the devil is wrong with this idiot? Why is he second-guessing the good work we did in 1959? Where's his phone number? (sighs) Dr. Penniston did not publish his findings in a medical journal, presumably at Inspector Graham's urging, nor would he testify at Stevens' new trial. The trial began on October 5th, 1966. This time around, Stevens' lawyers were E.B. Jolliffe, R.J. Carter, and Arthur Martin, a local legend whose associated catchphrase was, his clients never hang. Though Penniston himself would not testify, two medical experts were brought in to go over his work. 
They didn't need to read Peniston's letter to know that many of the conclusions he drew from his findings in 1959 were not possible. The contents of Lynn's stomach were the sole tool Peniston had used in determining Lynn's time of death. And his method for the analysis had always been presented as cutting-edge science. In reality, Peniston put the contents in a jar, held it up to the light, and, through the smoke of his pipe, eyeballed it for his best guess on what he could see. This is probably why he had several conflicting guesses as to what was in Lynn's stomach. It's tough to correctly identify partially digested food. Even with modern technology, experts agree it's nearly impossible to determine an exact time of death, and certainly impossible to pinpoint it to within a half an hour based on stomach contents alone. So it's safe to conclude that the window for Lynn's time of death was not nearly as narrow as Peniston's testimony had led the court to believe in 1959. And without that narrow window, it becomes impossible to pin Lynn's death to Stephen with any degree of certainty. Another difference from the 1959 trial was that this time around, Stephen's defense team conducted their own tests to determine whether Stephen could have seen a car from the bridge some 1,300 feet away. They presented conclusive evidence that, from the bridge, Stephen could have seen the make, model, and color of the license plate of a car on the highway. This proved that the original inspectors ignored a potential lead, all because they thought Stephen had to have been lying about the car. Martin also focused on the scrapings taken from under Lynn's fingernails. Given that there was blood under her nails, Lynn's killer would probably have scratches on his face, neck, and hands. No such scratches were present on Stephen when he returned to the schoolyard after his bike ride with Lynn on June 9th. As in the case of the appeal trial, several potentially significant facts were not made available to Stephen's attorneys. If the police had been legally obligated to share all of their reports with the defense, Martin would have known that the original police Bolton instructed officers to be on the lookout for anyone with scratches on their face, neck, and hands. This fact appears even more suspicious when the police seem to have dropped interest in finding a culprit with scratches altogether once Stephen was arrested. Once again, Stephen's attorneys were operating without all of the information. But the defense did have one more thing up their sleeve in 1966 that they had never employed before. This time around, Stephen would testify on his own behalf. When Stephen took the stand, jury and spectators alike were eager to hear what he had to say. He had maintained his innocence for so long, and now he would finally be sharing his own account of what happened on the night of June 9th. But inexplicably, Stephen did not prep for his big moment and was fuzzy and confused on the stand. He even contradicted his own account of what happened in 1959. He was not particularly compelling, and his testimony did little to convince the judges that he was innocent. This was only compounded by what Stephen had written in his parole request two years earlier, when he said that he'd learned that crime doesn't pay and referenced having made a dreadful mistake. Stevens' defense counsel tried to explain what he wrote in the application, saying that through his experience with other inmates, he had learned that crime doesn't pay and isn't a viable lifestyle. They said the bit about the dreadful mistake was included because Stephen believed he would get out of prison faster if he just pretended to own up to something. 
Their argument was a tough sell. Stephen's letter really had sounded like a confession. Well, the Supreme Court's deliberation took weeks, which turned into months. The Truscotts and the public waited eagerly for a verdict. Finally, on May 6, 1967, at 10.30 a.m., Justice John Cartwright read the court's decision. Eight to one, the justices voted to uphold the original decision made by the jury in Stephen's 1959 trial. Stephen would stay in prison. As Stephen heard the news, his eyes filled with tears. After everything, he was no closer to clearing his name or securing his release. Still only 22 years old, he seemed destined to remain in prison until the day he died. Coming up, Stephen Truscott gets one last shot at freedom. Now, back to the story. In 1966, Stephen Truscott received another great chance at freedom when the Canadian Supreme Court decided to review his 1959 conviction for the murder of his classmate and neighbor, 12-year-old Lynn Harper. By this point, Stephen was 21 years old and had been incarcerated for seven years. While the news that fresh evidence would be admitted into the trial filled Stephen's family with hope, it was soon dashed. On May 6, 1967, the Supreme Court justices upheld Stephen's original conviction. Though Stephen was devastated, many people in the town of Clinton were pleased with the court's decision. The locals who convicted a teenage boy and who had come under fire from Laborde's book on Stephen's 1959 trial. For Lynn's family, the trial was an extremely painful reopening of an old wound. They were already convinced that Stephen Truscott had killed their daughter. They didn't need a second trial to reassure their conviction. For some, the trial restored their faith in the justice system. But for others, it did the exact opposite. With implications that went far beyond the murder of Lynn Harper and her killer, it represented a complete and utter shattering of their trust. Protests broke out, calling for Stephen's immediate release from prison. People took to the streets, holding signs and chanting. They felt that justice had been grossly mishandled. But having public opinion on his side was not going to get Stephen out of jail. On May 7, 1967, he was transferred to the farm annex at Collins Bay, a privilege reserved for criminals who weren't considered to be volatile or dangerous. All Stephen could do now was maintain good behavior and wait for a chance at parole. On December 24, 1968, that good behavior paid off. Dr. Scott, the psychiatrist at Collins Bay who had long maintained Stephen was suppressing his guilty memories, gave the warden a new report on Stephen's health. I've wanted to be very sure about this because I know the consequences can be dire if I'm wrong. But, well, take a look. What is it? It's a clean bill of mental health for Stephen Truscott. I know that if Stephen commits another murder, it's on my hands. But I feel confident that we won't be having any issues with him. With Dr. Scott's approval on hand, Stephen applied for parole again. This time he was approved on October 21, 1969, a little over 10 years after he was sentenced to death by hanging, Stephen was released from prison. 
After briefly living with his parole officer to avoid public attention, Stephen moved to Vancouver, where he married Marlene Bowers, a woman who had closely followed his trials. Under an assumed name, they lived a relatively private life and had three children. But when new advancements in DNA technology revealed errors made in other high-profile Canadian cases, Stephen decided that it was time to step back into the limelight. He was the subject of a documentary made in 2000 by the Fifth Estate, which, like Isabel Laborde's book, outlined the case for his innocence. The producers were able to obtain all of the files associated with the case. So they were, for the first time ever, able to see what Stephen's lawyers never had access to. Every single interview, report, and file logged by the police. This included the first interviews given by the children, the original police bulletin looking for a suspect with scratches to the arms and face, confirmation that Lynn had been known to hitchhike, and a much broader window for the time of death. There was just one thing missing. Producers had hoped to find DNA evidence from the case that would definitively say, once and for all, whether or not Stephen Trescott raped and murdered Lynn Harper. Unfortunately, all of the original DNA evidence collected from Lynn's body appeared to have long been disposed of. Despite this, the documentary reignited a media frenzy, and on November 28, 2001, a petition was filed to reopen Stephen's case. And while all of the DNA evidence had disappeared from the police storage facilities, there was still one place for investigators to look. On April 6, 2006, Lynn Harper's body was exhumed. Disappointingly, the nearly 47 years that had passed since Lynn's death had rendered any remaining DNA evidence unusable. Though no new evidence was collected from Lynn's body, Stephen Trescott's case returned to the Court of Appeal on June 19, 2006. This time, unlike his original trial and subsequent appeals, all of the police's records were available, and all of the facts were on the table. Most notably, the information pertaining to the time of Lynn's death. Stephen's original verdict had hinged on the time of Lynn's death being between 7.15 and 7.45 p.m. And while she certainly could have died within that time frame, the full police records show that Dr. Penniston's findings actually indicated a much larger window for the time of death, between 12 and 48 hours. With no forensic evidence to tie Stephen to the murder, the time of death was not enough to implicate him in the crime, and so the circumstantial evidence that led to his conviction in 1959 was found to be insufficient for a guilty verdict this time around. On August 28, 2007, at the age of 62, Stephen Truscott was acquitted for the murder of Lynn Harper. It's important to note that Stephen was not declared factually innocent. This means he was acquitted because there was not enough evidence to tie him to the crime, not because it can be proven without a doubt that he is innocent. Stephen Truscott remains a suspect in Lynn's murder to this day, but he did receive a personal apology from Attorney General Michael Bryant for the miscarriage of justice. We cannot definitively say that Stephen was innocent. 
Unfortunately, all we really know is that someone came in contact with Lynn at some point in the 48 hours after she disappeared on that hot summer day 60 years ago. Someone who wished her harm. It may have been Stephen, but if it wasn't, then one person in the small town of Clinton, Ontario, has been harboring a very dark secret for a long time. It's mystifying that the police never looked into other suspects, because there are several other suspicious characters who might have been responsible for Lynn Harper's murder. One obvious place to start would have been a man named Alexander Kalachuk. Kalachuk was a 35-year-old airman living 12 miles from the Clinton base. Police may have focused in on him had his psychiatric file not gone mysteriously missing for a good 40 years. Kalachuk was a known pedophile, with a long record of indecent exposures, sexual indiscretions, and substance abuse. One such incident occurred on May 21, 1959, just one month before Lynn Harper was murdered. A 10-year-old girl named Nancy Davidson was walking home with two friends from school. They reached the homes of the two other girls first, leaving Nancy to complete the short walk to her own house alone. Nancy was almost there when she saw a car approaching. The man driving it was Alexander Kalachuk, and he tried to lure Nancy into the car with him. He said the two of them would go pick out a present for her. When that didn't work, Kalachuk tried to lure the little girl in with a set of children's underpants. Fortunately, Nancy's father saw the interaction and came running, and the little girl escaped. Kalachuk sped off, but Nancy's father called the police, who soon tracked him down. One week later, Kalachuk appeared in court for the incident. He told the judge that he had purchased underpants to use as prizes amongst the fishermen at Lake Erie, where he was headed the day he saw Nancy. When this didn't sway the judge, Kalachuk changed his story and said he was carrying the garments because he was throwing a party for the local children and the underwear was meant to be prizes for them. Lacking conclusive evidence of a crime having taken place, the judge sent Kalachuk away with only a stern talking to. Thirteen days later, on the night of June 9th, Lynn Harper disappeared. Kalachuk was never asked to account for his whereabouts that night, but there's good reason to think he was near Clinton as his home was 12 miles from the base. Plus... We know that he had a penchant for cruising the country roads. And while we don't know his actions on the day of Lynn's disappearance, we do know that he did something suspicious shortly after. In early 1959, Kalachuk had bought a new car, a pale yellow Pontiac Stratachief, a model with large fins on the rear. Very similar, in fact, to the late model Chevy Stephen Trescott described to the police. But curiously, in early July, Kalachuk sold his new car. A few weeks after Lynn's murder, a senior medical officer noted that Kalachuk was suffering from overwhelming anxiety, depression, and guilt. On July 22, 1959, he checked into a psychiatric hospital for those same symptoms. The psychiatrist assumed his condition was due to the incident with Nancy but noted that it was quite a large reaction for something that legally hadn't even registered as a crime. Well, another possible explanation is that Kalachuk was experiencing a reaction 
to having murdered Lynn Harper. But if this was the case, we'll never know. Kalachuk was never considered a suspect in Lynn's murder. He walked free until his own death in 1975. Years later, when a possible connection was drawn between Kalachuk and Lynn's killing, Kalachuk's stepchildren said that they would not have been surprised if he was involved in the disappearance of the little girl. They remembered their mother's husband as creepy, odd, drunk, and angry, and they always did their best to avoid him. If only they had been asked about their stepfather at the time. Another person the police probably should have looked into is a man named Clayton Dennis, an appliance repairman who was contracted to work on the base. Like Kalachuk, Dennis had a history of sexual indiscretion, as he had served time at Collins Bay for rape in 1948. Dennis also knew the Harpers, because Lynn's dad, Leslie, was the one signing Dennis's checks. Dennis even came over to the Harpers' home once to fix their washing machine and presumably could have met Lynn. He left Seaforth in the fall of 1959, almost immediately after Lynn's death. He said he was just ready for a change of pace, but that's not how Gwen McKellar, the wife of Dennis's best friend, remembers things. Clayton? Clayton! I'm here to return the tire gauge that my husband borrowed. You looking for Clayton Dennis? He left. He left? Like he's not home, you mean? No, he left the country. I think he said he was going to Florida. Florida? But all of his stuff is here. Yep. He just left in the middle of the night. Didn't say goodbye to anybody. Strangest thing I've ever seen. According to Gwen McKellar, Dennis regularly talked about sex in a way that she and her daughters found creepy. But that was nothing compared to the chilling response Dennis had to hearing of Lynn's murder. He said Lynn had it coming and that she was asking for it. Based on his proximity and access to the Harper family and history of rape, Dennis certainly should have been looked at with a closer lens. But like Kalachuk, Clayton Dennis was never formally investigated as a suspect. And he's not the final suspicious character police ignored. A third possible suspect for Lynn's murder is Matthew Maron, a 19-year-old airman. Maron worked as a lifeguard at the pool on the base, so he may have been familiar with Lynn, who was an avid swimmer. Shortly after Lynn's murder, he was transferred to Goose Bay, but was later kicked out of the Air Force for excessive drinking. He married and had two daughters, but the home he shared with his family wasn't a happy one. Maron had severe anger issues and routinely beat his wife. He also sexually abused both of his daughters. This alone should have positioned Maron as a potential suspect in the murder of Lynn Harper. But it's not even the most compelling piece of evidence against him. Once, a group of hunters caught Maron in the woods attempting to strangle his daughter because she refused to have sexual intercourse with him. Well, this crime bears a striking resemblance to Lynn's rape and murder. And it is baffling in hindsight that the police never thought to investigate a link between these two crimes. Mysteriously, Meron also told his wife that he knew Stephen Truscott was innocent. He didn't say how he knew, but one explanation could be that he had committed the crime himself. In Meron, Dennis, and Kalachuk, 
We have three men with alarming records, all living within close range of the last place Lynn was seen. If Stephen wasn't Lynn's killer, it seems likely that one of these three men was. Given all that we know about Kalachuk, I think he's the most likely person to have murdered Lynn. He had a known history of pedophilia, and the way he sold his car right after Lynn's body was found seems really suspicious to me. Interesting. See, I actually think that Matthew Marome is the most likely killer. He had a history of sexually abusing his own daughters, and his claim to know that Stephen was innocent reeks of his own secret guilt. Without DNA evidence to test, we're likely never to know the truth. But regardless of who killed Lynn Harper, it was a tragic event that forever changed both her small town of Clinton, Ontario, and the world's perceptions of Canada's legal system as a whole. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unsolved Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders into the search bar. And for more information on Lynn Harper's murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found Until You Are Dead by Julian Scher and the Fifth Estate documentary on the subject quite helpful. Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Lena Kuyumjan and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Rebecca Aarons-Diamond, Mike Capozzi, Susanna Corrington, Sky King, and Harris Markson. Oh.